Do you have any parenting insecurities? Is it even possible to raise children without doubting yourself, at least some of the time? Today, Steph is going to share an account of a solo road trip with her two girls and all of the insecurities it brought up in her. She's going to talk about her maternal identity crisis, how our own parents and grandparents can still feel like they're real grown-ups in the room, and of course, losing her shit, despite all of her efforts to do the opposite in front of her kids. Please enjoy this beautiful excerpt from Steph's memoir. I can almost guarantee you'll find yourself in her words. Just wait until she gets to the part about the moment after she lost her temper and her kids try to make her feel better. Ugh, we've all been there. All right, here we go. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Mother Plus podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Springer. So back in the spring, when I announced that I was going to be working on my first memoir, I told you I would do periodic solo episodes where I kind of checked in about how that process was going. I read an excerpt from my memoir, uh, Gaze at My Navel, which was one of our September episodes. And my last update was in the summer when I had taken one of my road trips back to visit my childhood homes. And today I'm going to read you another memoir excerpt. And this is about the road trip that I took nine years ago that gave me the original idea to write a memoir about going back to visit all of my childhood homes. So this this piece I'm about to read is kind of the first road trip in the saga. Here it goes. The idea came to me in the most unfortunate of ways, a 25-hour minivan pilgrimage to say goodbye to my childhood home. Well, one of them. We'd moved a lot when I was a kid, and I'd logged five houses by the time I graduated high school, a number that was quickly eclipsed by the rapid rehousing that occurs during that transitory stage of adolescence, where one often moves a lot. From the calmer dormitory to a less puritanical one, from that one shitty apartment to that other shitty apartment, from shacking up with the older boyfriend to the younger one, there'd been a lot of homes. It was as I lay face down on a massage table, counting every house I'd lived in to date, yes, I truly do ruin everything, that I realized I had called 18 places home throughout my life. But that pilgrimage-worthy house, the one I called my childhood home since I was 13 and served as a touchpoint all the way into motherhood, that one felt like the most important. I returned to it during college summers, holidays into my 20s, road trips while squirming with the weight of my pregnant belly in the passenger seat, visits to show my disinterested children where I used to live. It was a lighthouse, and my parents were selling it. From my stubborn perch as their forever child, I attempted to champion their Act Three autonomy and celebrate this milestone. Yet I rolled my eyes at their belief that this gorgeous structure was dated. I mean, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are a few things a good coat of paint and some modern vinyl flooring can't fix. Why not just go shopping for some new shit? Sure, the mauve and gray theme incorporated into literally every room besides my own bedroom pastel pink, lavender, and mint green, what a 1990s teenage dream, was a little bit past its prime. Yes, there was a lot of wallpaper and thick carpeting in the bathrooms. Ew. Still, I didn't understand their lack of reverence for this vessel. Moving to a house in a newer neighborhood five minutes away seemed a little rash. But my parents were excited. Their new home was smaller and more manageable. And best of all, it came tastefully decorated in neutral tones. No repainting or wallpaper removal necessary. 
being a generous and forgiving daughter, I grudgingly allowed them this bit of joy, but refused to accept the fact that I would never set foot in my home ever again. So naturally, I made the practical choice to load up my highly sensitive, anxious seven-year-old and spirited two-year-old, who is currently smack in the middle of the era we now lovingly refer to as Sophie's oh fuck phase, and hit the road with them. Off we went. A laundry basket full of snacks and activities rode shotgun next to me in the minivan, and my seven-year-old co-pilot was positioned diagonally behind me for easy access to distribute plastic yogurt containers full of snacks and a plethora of scratched and barely functional DVDs. My two-year-old was nestled happily in her toddler car seat, surrounded by pirate booty dust and a handful of treasured plastic dolls who'd survived my firstborn's code brown nap time phase, but whose subsequent trips through the washing machine made it appear as though they'd experienced an unfortunate forceps delivery gone wrong. Our travel plan had become more involved since we originally made the decision to drive 10 hours to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. As it happened, my grandmother had recently decided it was time for an independent living facility, and she would soon be moving out of her home of 20 years. It would be the last time I would sleep at her house, too. My emotional nerves were shot at the prospect of two final goodbyes in one week, but I was highly motivated by all things sentimental, and this seemed like a good opportunity for me to foolishly attempt to overcompensate for my adult inferiority complex. It took me a full hour into the drive to exhale. There was more at stake here than just executing a road trip that didn't resemble Dante's Inferno. I was proving something to myself that was harder to define. In addition to my general beliefs about personal competence, my maternal identity crisis had compounded things. Most mothers wrestle with the same tenuous and complex cocktail, who we were before, who we have become, the love for our children that has hijacked our balance, our feelings of inadequacy and resentment, and the guilt that peppers nearly every other emotion. As parents, we are constantly trying to prove to ourselves that we are enough that we are competent, that we were cut out to be mothers despite our misgivings that maybe we made better teenage babysitters than actual parents, that we can navigate a fucking road trip with our kids without crossing over to the dark side and morphing into an out-of-control ball of hysteria. I had my doubts about that last part. The first leg of our trip was a success. Nobody peed their pants and the van was still relatively habitable, despite its history of having once been so ransacked by a mere one-day mountain getaway that upon our return, squirrels were literally eating out of it while it aired out in the driveway. My bravado was shaken every once in a while, especially around the nine-hour mark when my toddler was randomly throwing art supplies around the back of the van while charmingly uttering, Oh, fuck. Pulling into a rest stop, I said calmly but firmly, Sophie, you may say, oh, fuck, when you are in this car, but we are not going to say, oh, fuck, in front of Grandma Myrtle. Do you understand me? She purged it from her system, and I didn't hear that word cross her lips until our return trip, at which point I unabashedly joined her profane chorus. Our first stop was Ames, Iowa, to visit my grandmother, and it seemed like a good way to get my feet wet and test my emotional endurance, as well as my patience. My aunt drove up to meet us, along with my favorite cousin and her seven- and four-year-old boys, and a joyful reunion ensued, complete with ridiculous dance parties involving Grandma's cane, confounding three-part knock-knock jokes, and Fisher-Price toys that had been preserved for decades. We went to my favorite restaurant, and it was the beautiful kind of madness that happens when you bring your 90-year-old grandmother and four children under age eight to a public place, but everyone's behavior falls within the parameters of social appropriateness. The kids crawled under the booth, and we laughed instead of scolding them. This was a celebration. 
We ordered the ham sandwiches, ice cream sundaes, and Green River phosphates that transported us back to the easy 1980s days of dessert-eating contests, waxy Crayola markings on the menu, carefully planned restroom adventures as a pack, and rolling our eyes as our parents unapologetically belted the refrain of their school fight song. It felt like heaven. My kids weren't being assholes, and I was having fun. I could absolutely handle this solo parent road trip. My daughters and I slept nestled close together in one of my favorite guest rooms on the planet. The soft flowered sheets, satiny band of the worn cotton blanket and white eyelet comforter had the calming effect of a sippy cup laced with Benadryl, and I slept like a baby. The next morning was harder. I woke up to the sound of Grandma's dingy beige Mr. Coffee percolating and was fascinated that even as a 35-year-old mother, my 90-year-old grandmother, who could literally protect us from nothing, still felt like the adult in charge. She woke first, made the coffee, set the maple dining table with plates for toast, jars of jam, a butter dish, and a small pitcher for cream. My children and I sleepily drifted to the kitchen and sat down, resting elbows on the scratchy woven placemats whose cornflower speckles would soon be dotted with jam and orange juice. Grandma busied herself at the counter, making what my toddler deemed the best toast in the world. Six years later, at Grandma's funeral, my second child's awe-filled adoration of Grandma Myrtle's toast made the eulogy while the congregation laughed. When my mom and I tried to figure out exactly what it was that made her toast so impressive to my children, we decided it was probably the fact that she used off-brand Wonder Bread, not the whole grain brownish bread my children were used to. White bread, lightly toasted, with butter from a dish that lived on the counter, and grape jelly in a glass jar from the local fairway made for the perfect breakfast. Grandma's house was the only place I drank orange juice. We didn't keep it in the fridge at home with any regularity, but every time I sat down at her table, I found I was craving it. I sipped it along with the weak coffee, a far cry from Starbucks or even the Carrick pods I was used to, with a splash of whole milk. As a child, I was so used to my parents' mugs of inky black coffee and was perplexed that Grandma and Papa's was a far more pleasing shade of milky brown. When it was time to say goodbye... I became predictably emotional. My children had behaved well, and I was grateful that Grandma had witnessed them being charming, that she was able to laugh at their silly antics while they beamed with smug pride at their cleverness. In truth, I was also grateful she had witnessed me being a good mom, staying calm, encouraging dental hygiene, observing an appropriate bedtime, and presenting children who neither swore nor misbehaved. Grandma and I hugged, and then she clasped my arms with both hands. All good things must come to an end, she said without any pretense, gazing kindly at me with her watery blue eyes. I wasn't sure if she meant our sleepover, my impending farewell trip, the fact that she would soon be moving, or her own life. It could have been any of those things. We had certainly reached the stage of life when every trip to see Grandma could have been the last time we would see her. Maybe she could sense that it was the one life lesson I stubbornly refused to accept. I loaded the girls into the car and we drove away from Ames, a lump in my throat that temporarily melted away with the soundtrack of my epic road trip playlist, but returned five hours later as we turned onto my old street in Sioux Falls. The Rolling Stones' melancholy wild horses played as I approached our house. It felt like a funeral dirge. We hugged Grammy and Papa, the girls with unabashed delight and me with false brightness, and brought our things into the house. These would be my last nights sleeping in my old bedroom, and I wondered what it would possibly feel like the next time we came to visit. Would the guest bedroom and their updated home feel like a sanctuary, or would it feel unfamiliar and wrong? 
We visited the new house, still empty, and I smiled with tight lips as my parents showed the girls around their new bedroom and revealed all the hiding places for little girls to explore. Over the next few days, I drifted from room to box-filled room with my fancy camera, taking close-up photos of every surface of my old house. The grains of the walnut-floored entryway, seven iterations of gray and mauve wallpaper, the rust-colored hotel-style carpet in the basement, the peach curtains in the guest room. Every bedspread wall and carpet was captured. I vowed to make a quilt out of the photographs, but I was a working mom of two, and that clearly never happened. I walked up to my bedroom for the last time, conscious as always of my overdramatization and theatrics, but I couldn't help but try to imprint the sensory memory of the grooved wood floor under my feet as I padded to bed, then the dense cushioning of the stairway carpeting. The next morning, I remember sitting on the front steps with my children, smiling for a photo, but I don't remember driving away. Any sadness I felt at saying the final goodbye was quickly overshadowed by the disaster to come. Prior to leaving Colorado, we had painstakingly searched the seven-day weather forecast all the way from our house through Nebraska to Iowa to South Dakota. Any blizzard conditions would render the trip a no-go, regardless of how strongly nostalgia tugged at me. The week ahead had been mercifully clear, but as any Midwesterner knows, things can change quickly. And they did. The snow was minimal, but it was the wind coming out of nowhere that did us in. My oldest child had a handful of phobias, but none ranked as highly as wind and the potential for weather disasters it signaled to her nervous system. As the wind violently whipped snow and debris across the Nebraska freeway, my co-pilot sat in the back seat with her headphones on, a sensory deprivation tent blanket covering her entire body, and cried. Next to her, my toddler was oblivious, watching a marathon of decade-old Wiggles videos whilst chirping expletives and grinding veggie straws to an organic, grimy pulp in her car seat. After an ill-timed toddler poop request and the utter hysteria that ensued while crossing the rest stop parking lot, I knew we weren't going to make it much farther. I canceled our hotel, booked another one, and we stopped for the night an hour earlier than planned. We were a ridiculous sight, fumbling to unload our belongings from the car. The wind whipped fast food wrappers across the parking lot. We comically dropped items over and over in an effort to manually close the automatic van doors that were paralyzed by the wind. I needed to make it 50 feet to the hotel entrance with my children, our overnight bag, the bed rail, portable toilet seat, grocery bag of snacks, the laptop bag, and their pillow pets in one trip because clearly we would not be venturing out into the wind a second time. When we arrived inside at the elevator, all three of us were laughing hysterically, overcome by relief and the absurdity of our situation. Unfortunately, the moment of levity ended abruptly when I was unable to unlock our room. It was the dawn of that bewildering era akin to automatic faucet installation when hotels changed their key cards, so you could simply hold them in front of the door to unlock it. Kearney, Nebraska was apparently ahead of the times for once in its history. I had never encountered this phenomenon before, and haplessly pried everywhere trying to find the key slider and inadvertently breaking the top of the handle off. I dropped the bags on the ground, already irritable, and now suddenly mindful of a creepy gentleman, hungover and possibly on drugs, who was staggering around the hall like an extra on the set of The Walking Dead. I quickly realized just how fragile my bravado was as it shattered. Finally comprehending the key, I heaved our bags through the door. Shady Dude was rapidly approaching, and I was sweating profusely. I snagged my shirt on the doorknob and bashed my back into the doorframe as grapes rolled across the carpet. I lost it. I slammed the door and unleashed what was likely the source of my toddler's new vocabulary word. 
Crying uncontrollably, I herded my bewildered children into our hotel room. I stepped over the spilled bags, locked myself in the bathroom, and sobbed with shame at having failed at my effort to be super road trip mom who kept it all together. I'd stayed calm during the wind crisis, soothed my anxious daughter, and gotten us into the building, but the stress finally caught up with me, and I had nothing left. My previous confidence and competence vanished. I did the thing I hated most as a parent. I showed my hand. I let them see how hard it was. I exposed my flaws, my frailty, my edges. After a few minutes, I managed to get myself together and came out to comfort my daughters, who were crying on the other side of the door. Still blubbering, I apologized as my children ran around trying to pick up the spilled grapes and offering me various clothing items off their own bodies to dry my tears. I felt awful. What kind of mother falls apart like this and needs her kids to comfort her? I was exhausted, but sleep wouldn't come. I lay in bed for several hours, trying to come down off the adrenaline rush. I slept for about 90 minutes, filled with anxiety and a running loop of all my failings. I was trying to do too much. My career was a disjointed, jumbled mess, and I juggled more gracelessly than anyone I knew. I needed to make some major changes in my life. I couldn't concentrate. I had stopped exercising. I was tired of feeling irritable and resentful all the time. Every semi-stressful event in my life presented itself to me for examination. Every confrontational fantasy I'd ever explored came home to roost. It was a true dark night of the soul, and probably a panic attack as well. Unfortunately, prescriptions for Lexapro and clonazepam were still five years away, and cannabis had not yet been legalized. I wanted to be serene and unflappable. But in reality, I was the most flappable person alive. I was a pearl clutcher's nightmare, an asshole mom who offered up profanity in a short fuse instead of crafts and creative snacks. One thing I do excel at is making reparations and apologizing when I am wrong. I'm not sure that allowing your children to witness you having large emotional reactions is fundamentally wrong, per se, but I did feel compelled to make things right and at least acknowledge that I felt bad for having lost my shit. My children graciously accepted my apology, somberly packing up their belongings the way kids do when they know their mom is this close to losing it and they better fucking act right. We wearily dragged our belongings back to the hotel lobby, filled up on dry powdered sugar donuts and subpar yogurt, drove through the espresso shop and hit the road. With calm weather and solemn passengers, our final five-hour leg was uneventful, and we cheered with jubilation out the open van windows as we pulled onto our street. We did it! We made it! I crowed, not certain if I really felt proud of my partial success or if I just wanted to talk myself into it. I knew I would tell the story over and over. I healed a little bit every time I did, the bitter sting of guilt melting away as I solidified my belief that our children need to see us as people, that revealing our Achilles heels does not make us lesser parents. The trip ended badly, but it hadn't been a bust by any means. I spent one last night at my grandma's house and made some of my favorite memories ever with her, without my own mom as a middle-generation buffer, just as a granddaughter who is now a mother herself. I said goodbye to the home that meant the most to me. Despite the gracelessness, I successfully solo-parented my daughters through seven days and 24 hours of drive time. And sometime between photographing the dated wall colors and convincing myself the hotel hallway derelict was going to murder us, I had the best idea ever. I would make another pilgrimage, or maybe two or five, and visit every place I had ever lived. And naturally, I would write a book about it. Once the initial inspiration struck, likely during a dreamlike state of psychosis induced by too much caffeine, poor sleep, whining children, and the thrum of highway hypnosis via my trashed minivan, there was no way I could resist. I was hooked. 
My daydreamy childhood practice of writing a book inside my head instead of concentrating on other things came flooding back, reminding me of how strong the pull was. For the last leg of the trip and subsequent weeks and months, I jotted down notes and ideas. Going back in time was so me. As a self-proclaimed nostalgia junkie, revisiting every home I'd ever had felt like the equivalent of a methadone clinic. It's possible that in actuality it would turn out to be an opium den instead of a rehab clinic. It's also possible that I suspected that all along, and that the pull of the cozy, hookah-filled den was just too powerful. No matter, I was determined to get clean, or maybe have one last hurrah first. If I couldn't have the real thing, actual time travel, I could at least return to the scene of the crime. But that was the thing. There was no crime. My life was astonishingly average in the way that so many Gen X white girls named Stephanie who were raised in the Midwest in the 1980s by Scandinavian Lutherans was. But because I had always felt like something was wrong with me, I had this vague idea that perhaps the trip would uncover some memory I had misplaced. Maybe there was buried trauma I had forgotten that would explain why I was so messed up in the head. Like, oh, of course, the babysitter's older brother kidnapped you that one time when you were three? No wonder you're such an anxious, neurotic mess. That explains the undiagnosed neurodivergence, interpolarization, and general itchiness in your skin. I didn't really think that by going back, I would remember something shocking, something memoir-worthy. But I did think there was something to discover. And at the very least, maybe I could figure out why I seemed to be so preoccupied with the past. Maybe it wasn't the most embarrassing idea ever. Pointless, perhaps. Inconvenient, yes. I had two small children, a job, and a budget. And even back then, I was fairly confident that writing a book about one's own boring upbringing smacked of navel-gazing culpability. But I didn't care. I would unabashedly embrace my love of nostalgia and meaning-making and visit every single previous home throughout my life, all 17. I could take a pilgrimage again. Dark night of the soul be damned. Just maybe not for a really fucking long time. So that, my friends, is an excerpt from my memoir that I have been working on since the spring. And um, it's the first road trip. And I do take more road trips. In July, I shared my travels of going to Milwaukee with my brother and to Iowa with my college best friend. Um, I've been to Iowa several times in the last year, revisiting homes and places. And it's been really interesting to go back and remember this first trip. The idea, you know, in in its initial phases is the same and yet different as what the book has sort of become. Um, like, I, like I've said before, when I sat down to actually start pulling it together, um, I realized that there was no way I could have written it if I'd started it nine years ago after I took this trip. Uh, the book didn't know what it wanted to be when it grew up, is what I keep saying, in addition to the reality that I had two little kids and I just I didn't have the space. But most importantly, I didn't really know the point. And um, so it's interesting for me to revisit this story kind of knowing now how it ends, so to speak. I mean, if we ever know how any memoir ends, um, I guess it's all just it's all just a chapter, right, for all of us. Um, but anyway, so that's that's where I'm at right now. I'm probably about eighty percent done with the actual writing, maybe a little more, and then I'm going to get into this sort of gritty phase where um, I have to put it in order, I have to structure it, I have to kill darlings and cut shit and do a lot of painstaking work. Um, But the traveling has been beautiful and the writing has been illuminating. And um, since I announced in April that I was making these big changes and I wasn't going to be teaching my music classes as much anymore, 
it's, it's coming together. Um, I'm not sorry. I don't have any regrets um, about my choice to focus on this book. And um, so that's, that's where I'm at in the process. And I'm grateful to you for listening and following along with me. And we'll see you next time for another episode of the Mother Plus podcast. Bye. Local friends, we hope you will join us on Sunday, November 5th at 5 p.m. for Listen to Your Mother Denver. Stacy and I will both be reading pieces in this show. It is the first Listen to Your Mother Denver alumni show that we have had in our 10-year history of Listen to Your Mother shows in Colorado. This will be kind of a highlight reel featuring audience favorites from the past decade and some brand new pieces as well. Listen to Your Mother is the live stage show that gives motherhood a microphone, featuring local writers reading their original compositions about motherhood, having a mother, being a mother, not having or being a mom. Each show takes the audience on a well-crafted journey filled with humor, poignant moments, and lots of nods of recognition. Listen to Your Mother also partners with local sponsors who enrich the community, as well as a local charity that benefits women and children. Help us support this year's local charity, A Precious Child, and join us for a super fun mom's night out or even a date night. We've got a dozen of our favorite ever Listen to Your Mother shows from over the past 10 years of Listen to Your Mother in Colorado. Stacy and I will both be reading. You can grab tickets at holdmyticket.com. And we will put a link in the show notes to where you can buy, or you can go to my website, Stephanie Springer, that's S-P-R-E-N-G-E-R.com for more information. The show is Sunday, November 5th from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Oriental Theater in Denver, Colorado, 4335 West 44th Avenue. It's in the Tennyson part of the Highlands neighborhood in Denver. Locals, we hope to see you there.